0: This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend Sean Lake. Co founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So, I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter. That has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty, listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. products do what they say they're going to do on the label and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorn apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat and that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorne.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Dan Bornstein. Now, Dan is one of the foremost experts when it comes to both health and physical readiness, both in and out of the military. So we discuss a host of topics, from the childhood injury that led him into the fire service, his educational journey into performance and health, working in the citadel and with government on physical readiness and overall wellness of the nation, physical education, the financial implication of the obesity epidemic, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dan Bornstein. Enjoy. Well, dan i want to start by saying thank you so much firstly to z who connected us and has connected me with so many of the guests that have been on the show already and i will get that bugger on the, the show at one point when i can finally persuade him um but also welcome you personally to the behind the shield podcast today
1: yeah james thank you so much i i've so z is a bit of a force of nature and 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 he and i met i think by chance well nothing really happens by chance but we met by chance and 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 he turned me on to your podcast and and subsequently I've become such a such a huge fan so it's just really an honor and pleasure to be here so thanks thanks for all the great work that you do and I'm excited to dive in.
0: Well that in itself explains to me or, or uh, illustrates the power of podcasts in general not just this one but but in general that here we are i'm like i'm a you know englishman who became a firefighter sitting in a house in ocala florida and it connected with you who you know is is pivotal in the citadel and and moving the needle in the nation's health i think just just a a tangent for a second that really speaks to the the power of when you remove filters and barriers the power of communication in this medium
1: totally (laughs) totally and you know it's so funny i was at i was at a a a gathering of of friends and so, so so the parents of friends of my son my son is is in 8th grade and they've just started school again and we were talking about how many books our, our our kids read over the summer they were supposed to have read two and and all the parents including me we sort of said how many books did your kids read and we all kind of said none and and I, I, so yes i think again to have formats like this be consumable to be able to provide information that really is consumable sometimes it's bite-sized sometimes it's a little bit longer i just think it's so important we are in this this sort of digital information age and yeah i've got certain problems with it i would like my son to read a little bit more and then i'm like well maybe he'll just get the information from a podcast
0: absolutely so where on planet earth are we finding you today
1: I am. I don't know my exact longitude and latitude, (laughs) but I I reside and work now from home. So I live live in a small town called Norwich, Vermont. Norwich, Vermont is about north-south, about halfway up the state of Vermont. So for those outside the U.S., this is the northeastern region of the United States. And... It's. Uh, I live right on the New Hampshire border, so perhaps uh, uh, um, an area that people may know or that may resonate is, is Dartmouth College, which is one of the Ivy League schools, so that's why some people may know it. Dartmouth is about four minutes from my driveway, so I live right near Dartmouth College. I am approximately 10 minutes by foot from the Appalachian Trail, so I can walk out my back door and be on the Appalachian Trail in minutes. And I love being in the mountains. I love being in Norwich. I moved here because my 89 year old mother is here. She's increasingly needing some assistance. And we were able to persuade my wife's parents to move with us uh, from South Carolina to here. So we're in this place in our lives where we're caring for our children who are in eighth grade and ninth grade, respectively, my son and daughter. And then three aging parents who are increasingly needing, needing assistance and help. So I'm really feeling quite blessed actually to be in, in a, in a geographical location that I love and being able to pursue, uh, being a family man, uh, and being able to do what I want to do professionally and then be able to go outside my door and be on the Appalachian Trail in minutes. It rocks.
0: Yeah, it sounds amazing. I've been to, to Vermont um, a couple of times. If, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it Lake Erie? That's uh, where Burlington is? Yes. Yeah. So I would work in upstate New York on summer camps. And some of our days off, we take the ferry over to Burlington. Absolutely beautiful countryside.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: Yeah. All right. Well then, let's start at the very beginning of your chronological journey then. So, you, you have an 89-year-old mother, so let's talk about that with the inception. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings.
1: So, I was born I was actually I was born in New York, New York. My my uh so Manhattan. And my parents at the time, my my parents were living in New Jersey in a suburb of New York City. When I was about six months old, we moved from New Jersey to the town that I grew up in, which was called Bedford Hills, New York. Bedford Hills, New York is about 25 miles north of Manhattan, a suburb of New York City. My father was a, my father is deceased. He died about um, 27, 28 years ago, but he was a neurologist who at the age of eight, I don't know how he knew this, but at the age of eight knew that he wanted to be a neurologist. So, um, so he went to medical school, uh, but he was less interested in, in being a practicing neurologist and more interested in research. So he actually specialized in research in the area of multiple sclerosis and really taught me, or I guess led through his example, the importance of science. So he sort of ran these gold standard, double blind, randomized placebo controlled trials, uh, testing uh, pharmacological interventions for treating MS. And <clears throat> one particular uh, 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 drug that he helped to test uh, has subsequently become the number one treatment for multiple sclerosis. So what's really, really cool is that 26-plus years after his death, the work that he's done is still having this profound impact on the daily lives of individuals who are stricken with multiple sclerosis, which is a lot to live up to. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to live up to that, but I'll try. And my mother is a, a social worker. She's a clinically trained social worker and she worked primarily in pediatric oncology. So a pretty tough space to be in, but really use that as a way to help families Uh, in, in their real times of crisis. So I grew, I grew up in this household where being of service was really quite important. And then doing work that you were passionate about was also quite important. I'm the youngest of five and, um, I'm, I'm often referred to as the golden child. I, I don't know why, but. But certainly, my my older siblings did not only like blaze the trail, but they paved it for me. So by the time I came around, my parents had pretty much seen it and done it all, and they just kind of left me alone. So in many ways, I I, I was left um, to my own devices. But it, it worked out pretty well, I think. I, um, but my and my siblings are all in various types of service. Um, so one is a college professor, one is a doctor, one is a a choral conductor uh, and works in, in like faith-based communities. And the other one is a, is a social worker and meditation teacher. So it's a sort of broad range of people, but we're all very much passionate about trying to do work. That's, that's making a positive impact on the lives of others. So I, that that's where I grew up. I, I went to, I was a product of public schools, uh, up until my junior year of high school, when it became pretty clear to me, actually, that, public school, maybe wasn't preparing me enough. So maybe there's some other people out there that can relate to this. I was like that middle of the road student. I was like a C student in high school. So like nobody cared about me, right? I wasn't I wasn't a good enough student that people were like, oh man, this kid is really awesome. We got to really support him. And I wasn't failing. So like, wow, we really need to provide this kid with some support. So I actually went to my parents when I was a junior in high school and they were really committed to public schools. And all my siblings had gone through public schools and some of them did great and went on to very prestigious colleges and a couple others, you know, went on to decent colleges, but not necessarily prestigious ones. And I went to my parents as a junior in high school and I said. This school is not preparing me for college and I need to go to boarding school. And uh, they were shocked uh, a by. I think maybe the cost associated with that, I was fortunate that, you know, again, my father is a physician, uh, but not a clinical physician, didn't make a ton of money. We lived off of grants that he got from NIH, National Institutes of Health and nothing. so we didn't have a ton of money. Uh, but I was fortunate that they they did have enough money and they did believe that what I was saying was true. It took me a while to really convince them. And, and ultimately, what they asked me to do was first go to a summer boarding school that was as close... I think, to a military experience as possible. We didn't wear uniforms. It was highly, highly regimented. And it was actually up near where I live now. It was in Wolfboro, New Hampshire. It was called the Wolfboro Camp School. Lived in a platform tent and spent the entire summer going through a pretty rigorous academic process. And that was like the test. My parents wanted to test to see if I was really ready and uh, I was, I don't know, I think I got the award for like camper of the year or something. And 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 the, the, the headmaster of that camp said, this camp is good, but chances are if Dan goes back to that same environment that he came from, he's going to revert back to his old behavior. So he probably would do well to go to a boarding school. So I ended up at, at a small, really, really small school in in Central Maine called Gould Academy. And I repeated my junior year of high school. And... More out of the need to just mature as a human being than, you know, to have the number of credits necessary to graduate. And it really did set the stage for my understanding of how to take responsibility for myself, you know, academically and personally, and set me on just a really nice trajectory towards whatever came, came later. Graduated from Gould and went to a small school in upstate New York. You were talking about upstate New York. I went to Hobart College, which is in the Finger Lakes region of of upstate New York. And I had a phenomenal experience there. Uh, And maybe we'll talk later about how I ended up getting into the fire service as a volunteer. But I had the opportunity to um, serve in the Geneva Fire Department in Geneva, New York, while I was also a student, which was awesome because... The, you know, it was a typical sort of college in a small town where there, were, there was, you know, a fair amount of money for the students who were going to this college and not necessarily a whole lot of money in the town in which the college existed. And there was a lot of tension. And I was the first ever student to also then become a firefighter who wasn't already from that town and they did not trust me. In the beginning uh, for two reasons one one I think because again I was this like Hobart kid who was who was trying to become a fireman or actually I've, I was already a firefighter uh, from, from Bedford Hill so I i had gotten my training already but but they didn't really trust me because I was a, a student sort of other side of the tracks kind of kid and also I was this like New York New York Jew I was this Jewish kid from New York City and the the company that I was in which is called the Nestor hose company was was almost completely Irish guys. And they did, they just didn't know what to make of this Jewish kid from from effectively New York City. So it took me a while to get there buy-in, but I, I stayed humble. I stayed quiet. I watched for a while. I followed orders. And ultimately, um, it ended up being one of the greatest experiences of my life because I could, I could sort of walk away from campus and be a firefighter, and then I could walk back to campus and be a college student. And it was awesome. Just awesome.
0: Amazing. Well, firstly, it has a hell of a story. And I can imagine once they had trusted you, because I mean, we've all got that thing that, that, you know, the label that maybe makes us different, but ultimately it is trust. You know, when a new guy walks in, I always said this, even my last department, I had almost 10 years as, you know, in other departments when I walked through the door as a probie. Um, but I had the humility to be like, all right, they don't know if I'm good or bad, regardless of what I did before. So, you know, this is what this first part is about. Um, I want to unpack what your parents did just for a second with, well, firstly, with your dad, knowing you want to be a neurologist, eight years old, I'm assuming he read more than two books over the summer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he was a voracious reader.
0: He was, he,
1: he actually got in trouble for reading too much. His dad, he would tell stories about his dad coming into his room at 11 o'clock at night. And he had like a little light on. Uh, This and so, just to give you a, a sense of time, my father graduated from college in 1939. So, this is this is this is early, it's probably early 19 or mid 1920s ish or late 1920s. My father was in bed with a little light on reading, and his dad would come and say, Hey, you know, put that book down and go to sleep. So, he was a voracious reader, and I was not. I mean, I was just not a reader and my it's challenging now raising a son who's 13 and like really wanting him to be a reader uh and and i've you know i've sort of grown into a a love for reading as an adult but i certainly didn't have it as a kid my dad did he read everything and anything he could get his hands on
0: now how old were your parents when they had you yeah um, <laughs> I'm no great mathematician but it- <laughs> no, no, no you're,
1: you're, you're you got it so my father was 55 when I was born. My mother was 40 so they were 15 years apart and and <laughs> again just to put that into context, when my father was a freshman in college, my mother was in kindergarten so um, but they ended up meeting you know when my father was was my, so my mother was like 22 and a, a young, social worker working at Mount Sinai hospital in New York city. My father was a, was a, you know, a research scientist neurologist also at Mount Sinai. And they, they got, um, they got hooked up and, uh, actually it was on their So their second date, they had gone on one date, they met at a party where one of my father's colleagues said, you know, you need to meet this woman, Selma Peretz. My father's name was Murray Bornstein. But uh, they said, Murray, you need to meet this young woman, Selma. And so they were introduced to each other at a, you know, just like a friendly party, maybe, maybe six or eight couples there. My mother was living in Brooklyn with her parents and her grandmother in this tiny apartment. And three weeks after their first date, my father showed up at the door of my mother's apartment. My father, my grandfather was a shoe salesman. So he was a traveling salesman. And my father knocked at the door and my you know my grandmother answered the door and said who are you and he said my name is murray bornstein is is selma here and she said yes but she's not feeling well she's on she's on the couch and he said well i have this question i'd like to i'd like to ask her um is she available and 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 my my grandmother again said well she's not feeling well my father said well that's okay i'll, I'll wait and so they invited him in and he slept on that couch overnight. Uh, and then my mother came out the next morning and he asked if he could marry her. And she said, well, I barely know you, you know, and I don't know. My father's not even here. And so the, the story is that ultimately, obviously, she she said yes. And they were married about 11 months later and they were married for 49 years. Uh, so just shy of their 50th wedding anniversary. When so my father passed away. But, yeah, there was 15 years between them. And, and, and I would go to the supermarket. The grocery store as a young boy. And, uh, frequently they would ask if, you know, if my dad, if I was his grandson or me, if this was my grandfather and I had, there was a bit of like a, a weird thing for me. Uh, just feeling, you know, my dad was a lot older, so he didn't, he wasn't super playful. He wasn't the, the dad who went out and played, played ball with me. He was a wonderful father in, in a myriad of ways, but, uh, But he wasn't a super active guy, actually. And I think that led to ultimately, actually, his premature death, what I would call premature death. At 77, died of a massive cardiac event. And uh, I think had he lived a more physically active and healthier lifestyle, he'd have probably lived a lot longer. But uh, sadly, he died when I was 22. And uh, I don't get to ask him those questions. I wish I could ask him now about how to be a better better dad and, and and husband but um but he he provided a pretty nice example for me
0: well i mean it's a it's a you know an incredible journey and and with as you said being the youngest of the kids it obviously illustrates why you were you know, there was a larger gap between your age and theirs the reason I asked, when I worked in these summer camps, it was predominantly Jewish, um, wealthy Jewish families. And one resounding truth was that a lot of these very young children had old-ass parents. So <laughs> I wasn't—I sure, was going to ask you if that was a, a, a New York thing, a, a Jewish thing, maybe more of a, a um, you know a career-driven Jewish thing. Is there—is there a culture of having children older in the community? Gosh, that's
1: a good question, and I should probably know the answer to this. And, and it's funny because um, when I, I sort of tell people that I'm Jew-ish, so where, <laughs> where I, where, <laughs> the reason I say that is is that um, we weren't brought up in a particularly religious household. Uh, the 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 synagogue where where we lived was much more of like a social status thing. My dad wanted, my dad wanted nothing to do with that. So we didn't really study the religion. We weren't bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah as, as kids. Um, however, there is a social culture to, to Judaism that, 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 that is strong. So I was brought up with that. And, and there is an emphasis on education for sure and achievement. And, um, and, and, you know, I think in Orthodox Jewish families, there, there is, I think similar to Catholic families, you know, there's there's this idea of having a lot of kids. Some of that may be as the result of the Holocaust and the need to preserve the faith. Uh, but I, I'm no expert in Judaism and Jewish culture by any stretch. So just the fact that that's something you observed is even a little new to me. But uh, but yeah, I, I had an old dad, and I and it was a function of the fact that he clearly put. Work first. And even said that to my mother. He said, I am married to my job before I'm married to anything else. And, uh, and I, you know, that's the way I've lived the first half of my life. It's how I'm actually choosing not to live the second half of my life. So, this move that I made about a year ago up to Vermont from the South and from the Citadel was a very conscious choice to actually put family first and it's challenging it really challenges a lot of the norms that i was brought up with but working on it
0: well with your dad's work um you you know he, he developed this pharmaceutical that is being used today but we're going to talk about the the incredible power of preventative health you know of, of creating resilience in the human body did he ever discuss or have you even learned after the fact some of the um The contributing factors to ms in the first place
1: Mm. well i i I will say that um again i'm also not a neurologist but one one of the things and and this is this is actually the scenario in in which he he died Uh, and it's it's and, and and it does tie into what what a lot of i think military and paramilitary professionals might struggle with, which is is TBI, traumatic brain injury. So one of the things that he did identify was that in multiple sclerosis, you could have an individual who had been completely asymptomatic. They showed no signs of, of MS, but might suffer some kind of TBI, even if it was minor, right? Maybe it was a car accident where the head tapped the windshield, suffered a mild concussion, But not like a major, uh, you know, closed head injury, but that within a very short period of time two, three, four weeks they started developing signs of MS, blurred vision, maybe some difficulty walking, some weakness in, in limbs, and so on. So he did recognize that uh and as a result of that in the latter portion of his career he got very interested in repeated micro traumas to the brain and (laughs) i i believe from probably age eight that i was put on this earth to be an nfl quarterback uh so six foot three you know in high school six foot three 210 pounds Um, I just, I, I, you know, well, I just grew up watching and loving football and I just thought this is what I was meant to do. And my father was adamant that I not play football. And I was, I did not like that. And I really, really, really wanted to play. And he said, no way. He did allow me to play lacrosse. So that was, that was a good thing. But, um, but he did recognize that these sort of repeated microtraumas, uh, or, or any kind of microtrauma could exacerbate or initiate uh, the signs and symptoms of that but I don't know that he ever got to a place where he could see that there were ways to perhaps prevent the illness from happening. And there's a saying often that doctors make the worst patients. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I think he died prematurely and that's because he was diagnosed with diabetes, probably right around when I was born uh, and loved ice cream and really did not like being physically active And uh, so in that way, he made a really terrible patient. I don't know how much he really believed in prevention necessarily. And I think that um, that led to his premature death.
0: Well, I mean, it's it's so tragic because we see this over and over again. I mean, you know, I know firefighters that don't wear the seatbelts. I know doctors and nurses that, you know, work in the ER that are morbidly obese that smoke, you know, and you, you just take a step back and go, how is that even a thing? But it is. And obviously, we'll unpack that. Um, with the head trauma I had a, a firefighter on the show who's got ALS and he was a NFL football player you know and I wonder now in this conversation many many people I've had in the neuro, neuroscience side and the tactical professions are reporting that the only thing that appears to help with TBI is psilocybin the psychedelic I wonder if there's an application for that with MS and ALS as well
1: you know what's so funny is that the psychedelic thing keeps coming up for me like just in the last couple of weeks part of it was listening to one of your podcasts but um so there was my, my wife and i just watched this uh this mini series called nine perfect strangers have you seen that it stars nicole kidman no i haven't so uh, you know it i think it's a hulu miniseries, and the premise uh, uh, at least on the surface is that nicole kidman runs this um this sort of wellness retreat center and she handpicks these sort of nine people who she thinks collectively are going to really be able to sort of help each other. But the subtext, which becomes actually the, the the main text towards the end of the miniseries, I guess, you know, spoiler alert here, but that psychedelics end up becoming part of the key ingredient to these people achieving wellness. And early in my career in the fitness industry. Um, I had the opportunity to work with a fellow named Andrew Weil, Dr. Andrew Weil. And Andrew Weil is pretty well regarded as perhaps sort of the grandfather of integrative medicine in the United States, the idea of blending Eastern medical practices with more Western medical practices. He He got his undergraduate degree in botany from Harvard. And upon completing that degree, he went around the world studying native populations and the, the ways in which they prevented and treated disease, oftentimes using native plants as the means for treating those those uh, treating those conditions and maintaining their health. And then he went on to Harvard and, and got his MD degree from Harvard. And early in his career, and, and maybe even to this day, he was sort of perhaps marginalized might be the, a nice way to say it, but even chastised it might be the less nice way to say it for suggesting that a lot of these native plants can have very powerful uh, methods of of health and healing, and and not necessarily psychedelics. He He, he talks a lot about Various types of mushrooms and 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 their ability to be very effective uh, treatments for the side effects that often go along with treating cancer. Um, So he's a, you know, he's a very well-known physician, and 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 he's written a couple of books that your some of your viewers may may want to tune or may want to read. The first uh, is called Spontaneous Healing, and it's basically about the idea that if we maintain a certain level of health and fitness in our own bodies, we have a, the body has an extraordinary ability to just heal itself. Uh, but we have to maintain a certain level of, of biostasis in order to do that. And then the, the next book that he wrote was called eight weeks to optimum health. And that was the one that really kind of set him on, on a trajectory towards, I guess, some level of fame. Uh, but in any case, we we I was his personal trainer, uh, so I, I'd go out to his his ranch out in Tucson. This long dusty road to get out to his house. I actually had to buy. I remember I had to buy a, a different car just so that I could get out to his house. I had I moved when I first moved to Tucson, Arizona. I had a little Honda Del Sol, like all right, big guy in a small car, make all the jokes you want. Uh, but there's a little tiny tiny car. But I was like little sporty cars. And he lived on this horrific dirt road, and I, I so I had to trade that in for an old, beat up Nissan Pathfinder with like 185 thousand miles, just so that I could get to his house. But, um, but he it was interesting because when we first started working out together, he was just really big on walking and yoga, as and that was what part of what he he preached to to his followers, I guess. And, I, and he wasn't a religious leader by any means, but he had a pretty good following and And I introduced to him the importance of resistance training which which he understood and, and he led a very active lifestyle. He's, he's still very active and still looks and looks great although I think he did also get some flack for being or at least looking overweight. He had this big bushy gray beard that didn't help um, but there were people that would look at him and say, "Hey well what are you talking about wellness dude you're you're fat Um, when in reality, did he carry some extra weight? Yes. Was he a very thick, muscular guy? Yes. He actually loved grappling. He was really into, into grappling. And that was one of the ways in which uh, he stayed fit. But but he was perhaps one of the first examples that I saw of somebody who yeah, might be carrying a few extra pounds, but because he was so committed to being fit in what he put in his body and and, and how he maintained physical activity, that he's, Super healthy, I mean, super healthy guy. Um, but but he also was realized the importance of resistance training as, as he was aging, as as adding that into his program. And I, I really pushed him on that. And I sort of poo-pooed, frankly, that walking in yoga could be enough. And then, you know, later on in my development, both personally and professionally, I went, hmm, you know, yoga is pretty awesome, and walking's pretty awesome. And I guess bottom line being there are lots of different ways and we can, we can, we can dive into this a little bit later. There are lots of ways to, to care for your body. Uh, so that was a really long way around, uh, plants and their healing properties. Uh, but he was the first one to really introduce me to that idea. And I, I, I do think we are on the precipice. Of really well, of really being able to, to accept some of these forms of of healing and these treatments in ways that perhaps otherwise or previously we've we've really vilified as just dangerous and illegal, when perhaps there really is space for them in 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 healing our minds and our bodies.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I can I can envision exactly who you're talking about as well. That's someone I should probably try and get on the show one day too. Now with the uh, that you said about the plant medicine and cancer just staying on your parents before we actually get into your actual <laughs> journey through life um you talked about your mum being a social worker with pediatric cancer patients so what were some of the takeaways that she had through her lens of the mental health and in a relationship challenges of having a child with a terminal disease like that
1: Only a couple things. I think one would be, and I'm speaking for her now, but I I partial, I would say one concrete one is realizing the importance of taking care of the whole family. So when you have one individual member of the family that's really struggling and suffering and sick, that the family also needs to be very much considered because they're the support system largely for that patient. And they themselves, in essence, are patients too, and they need to be cared for and and, and need an advocate. And that was really the role that she took, was really being the advocate for for the family and the family's needs. Uh, But I also think she came to understand how rapidly you can mature in your thinking, spiritually, when you're faced with death at a very young age, so and I had the opportunity to meet some of these kids, and I even did. I, I worked as a uh, volunteered as a camp counselor for an organization called Dream Street, which is an organization that uh, that sets up a camp for not necessarily terminally ill children, but very sick children, so that their families can have a break. For at least a week each summer. Um, And I was amazed. Being a camp counselor for these kids who were 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, their perspective on life and what was important was more mature than most 50, 60, 70-year-olds I had met. That's a blessing, I think, to really understand and appreciate what is truly important to have that developed at such a young age is, again, probably a gift that maybe is unfortunate, that, that it's that sort of facing death that, that forces us to do that. But I think that's true in the fire service, too, and maybe in other areas where, you know, on any given day, you may not be coming home. And it does put into perspective the things that are in truly, truly important. And that, that was one of the things that I really valued for my relatively brief time in the fire service, and even just as a volunteer, but oftentimes, you know, working alongside, you know, full-time firefighters too, um, just that recognition that it today could be it. So let's get the most out of it. Let's say, I love you. Let's give that hug. Let's whatever it is. And and those kids with cancer, knowing that they probably weren't going to survive, they, they got it even at age seven.
0: That's absolutely heartbreaking. Now, I can imagine the impact on your mother and her colleagues, you know, and and all the trauma that you're kind of absorbing. How was she able to regain her physical and mental health through that?
1: She's a tough broad, man. Uh, she's a tough broad. And I see it now at age 89 and having been, base, you know, a widow. I was just telling this story the other day. So my father died, I don't know, 27 something years ago. And I think she's gone on one date. Like he was the love of her life. And when he was gone, it was like, that's it. There there is nobody to replace. And, And so she has maintained this fiercely independent and robust lifestyle ever since then. She travels all over and she... She practices classical piano four hours a day and has built this whole community around, around music and piano. Um, so I think part of it was, she's also probably one of the world's best knitters. So uh, one of the things that's awesome about living back in the Northeast where it's cold, I get to wear my mom's sweaters. So she, she, it's a, what she does with two needles and two weeks is incredible. I don't know how she creates what she creates. So I, I think a lot of her ability to deal with some of those difficult things was, A, being a part of a team, um, you know, and social workers kind of get it too. They they know that you got to talk about your feelings. You can't just like push them down and drink them away. Uh, so that probably helped. Um, I think also she had some hobbies and outlets and knitting was was one of them and, and music was another. And then her family. I mean, she she was raising five kids. And so that maybe provided some distraction for her, too. But I definitely do remember times when she would come home and break down uh, because this 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 kid that had been such a bright light. Well, that light was no longer shining and it was tough. It was tough for her, but we got to see that and we got to see her at least emotionally kind of uh, let it out and um but she's tough i mean she she really is tough
0: well and that's what i think you know it really moves people when you have that kind of loss and as we said sadly i think some people are just you know can't see the wood for the trees like i said the obese you know doctor or nurse and 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 those those professions that are seeing it every day but it doesn't seem to sink in they don't seem to be fired up to be part of the proactive movement they just you know show up and i think that so many of them are just so overworked and so fatigued that they just don't have the capacity for that and with cancer i think that's one of the elements that that there is a preventative you know arm to that you know i think that yeah we're always going to lose some people but not the magnitude that we're losing at the moment so i want to walk you through your journey into wellness um let's start with the the staircase and then we'll wo- move forward from there
1: Let's start with the staircase. <laughs> yeah, I say start so, like
0: 40 minutes into the conversation. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, no, yeah, right, right, right. No, this is um, this is this is a story of again growing up suburbs of New York City in an old Victorian house and in Victorian homes sort of the, the style was that the at least the first floor of the home had very high ceilings. I think to give this I guess it was to sort of give this feel of opulence. I don't know. To, to us, it was just big spaces because we didn't live a particularly o- opulent lifestyle. Um, but what that meant was that the number of stairs that it required to get you from the first floor to the second floor was significant. I think there were 22 or 23 stairs, something like that. Was And you as a firefighter, you know this, right? Typically, it's whatever, 15, 16, 17 steps. Um, so this is 22 steps. They were like 15-foot ceilings, 16-foot ceilings. And it was Valentine's day of 1983. I was 11 years old. Again, the term latchkey kid. So my, my dad's in the lab and my mother's at, at, at the hospital uh, at doing her social work thing. And me, my two oldest siblings already graduated high school out of the house. So my middle brother was sort of the caretaker after we got home from school. He was like 15 at the time, 16, I guess. And so it's just me and my next older sibling. We're 16 months apart and my brother, uh, David. So he was watching TV, I think, or something like that after school. And and I decided that I was going to on that day, without even the presence of anybody else, I was going to set the world record for stair jumping. So in my 11-year-old mind, the, the world record sat at, at 16 steps, jumping down 16 steps. Where I got that number, I don't know. It, it's not a thing. It doesn't exist. But in my, in my 11-year-old mind, it did. So I decided I was going to try to jump and land from the top of the steps onto the 17th step. So I counted all the way down, and I, I slid my hands sort of down the, the, the handrail on one side and the wall on the other, and I jumped. And as my center of mass passed through where my hands were, my hands slipped and I fell. And I fell on my back. And I it was probably around step 10. (laughs) So had I even been landed successfully, maybe I'd I'd have fallen short of what in my mind was the world record. But so I there's this sort of thud, and then I slid down the rest of the stairs and I had the wind knocked out of me for what felt like an eternity. So my brother heard this thud, but then he didn't hear anything after that. So he assumed I was maybe just like kicking a ball around or something like that. And then when I, when I had enough wind to make a noise, I just kind of went, ah! that was all I could really muster. And my brother came over and I was laying there at the bottom of the staircase and said, yeah, what's wrong with you? And I couldn't really say much. I, I all I could say was ambulance because I was I was in a lot of pain. And he said, What do you mean, ambulance? I said, I can't breathe, whatever. So, long story short, he he calls 911 and the 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 Bedford fire department, all volunteers show up at the door and they take me to the hospital. And immediately I was diagnosed with just three fractured ribs, well, like on you know on the backside and the posterior, posterior ribs. And because that was what my, my most acute pain was. They didn't, they didn't do an x-ray of my back, actually. They just x-rayed my, my ribs because that's what I was saying. I was having all this, this pain there. So they, they identified the three fractured ribs, sent me home because there's not much you can do with three fractured ribs. I didn't puncture a lung or anything. And about four or five months later, so if you fractured your ribs, you know it's painful. It takes a while to heal. You don't hiccup. You don't sneeze. You don't laugh for, for quite a while. But as the pain for my ribs subsided, I started developing quite a bit of low back pain and that got progressively worse. And I ended up going to see, so again, my dad was a neurologist and he was pretty plugged in, fortunately, to the sort of New York City network of people. He brought me to an orthopedist. They x-rayed my back and they said, well, you've got, you've got four fractured vertebrae. And then they sent me in for an MRI and they said, well, in addition to those four fractured vertebrae, you've actually got two herniated discs and something called a spondylolisthesis, which is where you got one vertebral body that sort of slips ahead of the other, right? They're all supposed to be stacked one on top of another. So I had I had fractured four vertebrae at L4 and L5, herniated discs at L4 and L5, and a spondylolisthesis uh, at L5-S1. And the treatment at that time was back brace, immobilization, right? So they put me in a brace that I could take off for showers and so on and so forth. They removed me from, they said, no physical activity, right? No, no PE classes, no youth sports. You need to try to stay as immobile as possible. So they put me in again, in this immobilizer, this back brace. And I was, you know, I was pretty active, rambunctious kid. I I think had ADD been a real diagnosis back then, I'd have probably had it. And we know that, you know, physical activity is one of the best treatments for ADD. So, I didn't have that anymore. And I felt like a bit of an outcast, actually. It was, it was really hard for me to not be able to relate to my buddies and, and play with them in that same way. And my pain only got worse. Um, over, I wore that that brace for about a year and I started getting neuropathy, so I started getting pain down my leg and, and weakness in my left foot. And had, you know, was going back to the same doctors and they were kind of saying the same things, which was basically, no, this needs to be immobilized or, you know, you have, you have a few options if this doesn't work. One is uh, further immobilization. So they wanted to, one option was to put me in a hospital for six weeks under constant traction, just to try to create space in those vertebrae. So they, they were going to have me be even less active, just laying in bed for six weeks. I was like, no way. I can't, I can't do that. Um, then they said, you know, we could do surgery, which would be like a fusion. You know, we're going to, we're going to fuse all these vertebrae together. And, and I think my dad kind of recognized that that might not be a great option. And then they said, you could try physical therapy. It's probably not going to work, but inevitably I did try physical therapy and it did work. And that was, that was an aha moment for me. Um, I, I knew that from that point forward, I had a Basically, a chronic condition that I was going to have to try to manage for the rest of my life. And gradually, you know, as I got stronger, uh, uh, so I, I had this permanently affected structure. I had fractured vertebrae, herniated discs, and so on. But what I learned through that process was that by strengthening the musculature around the affected structure, I could effectively stabilize that area and manage the injury. Um, the other aha moment that happened for me that day was that, and I remember this vividly getting loaded into the back of the ambulance. And this was, so again, this is 1983. So if you can picture ghost, like the Ghostbusters style ambulance, that's, that's the bus that I was loaded into the back of. And I just remember thinking like, this is really cool that these guys are taking care of me. and, And someday I want to be on the other side of this. So as much pain as I was in, I remember thinking like, this is really, this is pretty cool. I want to do this someday. So I, I did work, work my way back into being able to participate in physical education after, frankly, having a, a, one of the physical education teachers in middle school, who's also the wrestling coach, straight up call me a pussy for, are we allowed to say that on this podcast?
0: Oh, yeah. There's an E for a
1: reason. So you're okay. fine. Um, you know, this guy just called me straight up, called me a pussy. And I was like, dude, I don't know what to tell you. The doctors told me I'm not allowed, you know, I'm not allowed to do this. But I mean, that, that hurt, you know, because I was like, no, I want, I want to play. I want to go wrestle. I want to do this stuff. But I wasn't allowed to. I'll, I won't name his name. Um, but anyway, so I was able to first they said, all right, you can run cross country. And which, you know, again, I was kind of a contact sport kind of kid. So I'll never forget. I was running my first cross country race in Van Cortlandt Park in the Bronx and it wasn't like it was like a, it was a 5k and i didn't know anything about cross country running except that you know you of course you try to be the fastest one across the finish line but i didn't know you weren't allowed to block people or like push them out of the way so i was one of the slow slower kids but i it was sort of like a single park trail through the woods and i was just not letting people pass me by pushing them out of the way and i got disqualified in that race of course uh but but so it started there, and I, and again I started getting a little bit more fit, and again I got stronger. And then they they said, okay, you can play tennis, you can play soccer, you can play lacrosse. As I said, my my dad said I you know I can never play football. Uh, and then his argument was made even stronger by you know orthopedists saying if you were to sustain a second back injury, now you'd really be in trouble. So you definitely shouldn't play football. So football was out, but I was able to play lacrosse, uh, and that just again got me on this. Understanding at an early age of the importance of maintaining an active lifestyle uh, to manage a chronic injury, and then I started to lose sight of it. So I, I made it through college, and in college I, I got a, my undergraduate degrees in psychology. I, I was really interested in sports medicine and, and exercise science, but those weren't even like it wasn't even an option back then. There was no program in in, in either of those areas where I went to school, but I did work as an athletic trainer for our uh, football and lacrosse teams and really got, again, an understanding of preventing injuries and also treating them uh, and the importance of, of fitness for, 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 preventing injuries. And then I graduated from college and I just decided I wanted to make money. I, and which was a hard thing for me because remember I said earlier that my, my, my whole Upbringing was around being of service and being part of the you know giving back to the community and and so on and so forth and and again I just I like I just wanted to make money. Uh, we sort of grew up, even though my father was a physician. As I said, we sort of grew up paycheck to paycheck. It was really like, are we gonna? Is he gonna get this next grant or not? And if not, we're we're going to be in trouble. And my father's best friend worked for IBM, and he was a he was a a businessman. And I remember asking him, his name is Emilio Cerrone, first generation Italian. And I said, Emilio, I just, I just want to make money. And he said, there's nothing wrong with that. And it was the first time I'd ever heard that. So my first job out of college, I was a, I was an insurance salesman in midtown Manhattan. I was a commercial property, casualty insurance broker. And my job was to make about 75 cold calls a day by phone, And I got rejected about 74 out of 75. So that, that was a good lesson for me, thickened my skin a little bit. But I was also sitting for 10, 12 hours a day and in a high stress job. So it was all, it was all my, my salary was based on commission. So I needed to, I needed to get it done. Um, and my, my back problems got. So bad that I ended up hospitalized on three different occasions, twice having to be taken to the ER by ambulance because I had back spasms that were so severe, I couldn't even move. I was laying on the floor completely incapacitated. And I actually lived with two guys. One was a cop and one was a medic. And uh, so they came home one day. And on top of this, my father just passed away. So there's a lot of stress in my life. And um, so one of my roommates came home that day and he found me just laying on the floor. I couldn't move. And he's like, wow, are you okay? And I said, you know, I could barely answer. He's like, we got we to get you to the hospital. So point being, living a stressed, inactive lifestyle had me in a place where my back pain resurfaced to a point where uh, I couldn't, I really couldn't take it. And that's when I moved professionally from, you know, the sort of, I guess, insurance industry into there's got to be a better way. And I thought maybe it's through corporate wellness. Like if I was just allowed to maybe get up and move around during the day, or the work out in the middle of the day, maybe I maybe I wouldn't be in as much pain as I had. So then I, I thought maybe I wanted to to get into this sort of this corporate fitness thing. Um, so I so anyway, that's that's how that 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 evolution from it all started from the top of the staircase at age eleven on Valentine's Day, and ended up again, setting me on this trajectory that I guess we could talk about a little bit more later, but that, that, was, that was where it all started, was top of the stairs.
0: Yeah, well, let's get to that now. So I know you, you got into the, the fitness training side, walk me through that and, and when you enter the tactical space with the military, and then we'll start kind of exploring some of these topics.
1: Yeah, so
0: as I mentioned, you know, I was, so on my 18th birthday,
1: I went down to the Bedford Fire Department and signed up to be a volunteer firefighter and went, went through the uh, academy training and became an EMT. Took that then, as I mentioned earlier, into college. So I was a volunteer firefighter through college. And then even after college uh, in the suburbs of New York City, uh, was a, a volunteer firefighter again. Um, and I love that. I just love that experience. And so again, got that idea of being of service. But I I, after I left the insurance business, I moved home. So again, my father recently passed away, and I moved to the town that I live in now, Norwich, Vermont. And I got a job working at the front desk of the local, like, you know, YMCA, basically. And I acquired my first certification in group fitness. So I started teaching like spinning and aerobics, if you can imagine that. Uh, But yeah, I was, I was, I didn't have like a the, the purple headband or anything like that or leg warmers but i was teaching like step aerobics um and i started coaching lacrosse at, at the local high school ironically the, the high school where my one of my children is now in school and i started saying wow maybe i really want to do this so i thought it was maybe the corporate wellness thing but it really was i just want to kind of get into this fitness industry and i had had enough of the northeast long winters Short summers, I want some warm weather. Uh, ended up getting hired by a company out in Tucson, Arizona called Canyon Ranch, which is a health spa for predominantly or almost exclusively very wealthy people. And Canyon Ranch was one of those places that was, again, very trend setting in the sense that they were taking this very proactive, preventive approach to health and, and wellness by offering. People the opportunity to come to a place that had everything from cardiology to palm reading and and everything in between. And so I got a job on the fitness staff there. And I was teaching, you know, five, six, seven fitness classes a day, everything from cardio kickboxing and spinning to stretching and yoga and tai chi and sort of had to be a jack of all trades and master of none. And I also got into natural bodybuilding, so I became an all-natural bodybuilder and tried to decide, all right, how how much can I do with just proper nutrition and, and working out. And I had some very modest success there, uh, but it was tough. You know, at six foot three, it was tough to be to compete against guys who were five foot ten and just had like those really they were just jacked. Uh, I was just lean and mean. Um, And then, as I mentioned earlier, I got introduced to Dr. Weil, uh, Andrew Weil. So he and I worked together for a while. And what I loved about Canyon Ranch was the expansive nature of offerings that they provided. What I had trouble with, however, was that it lacked stickiness. So you would, you know, the clients would come to Canyon Ranch for a week, two weeks, sometimes longer, and they would make these extraordinary, transformative changes in in their lives, and the mat, and you could see it from like day one to day five. You could see that they went from looking sickly to looking really well. However, Canyon Ranch was a bit of a vacuum back then, and I, I in the sense that. You're leaving all the stresses of normal life behind. And so, yeah, when you're in this vortex or vacuum, it's pretty easy to, and you've got somebody cooking delicious, healthy meals for you, three meals a day. And all you have time to do is get you know, massages and exercise and go for a beautiful hike in the desert and so on and so forth. So I, I you know, I, I but I would stay in touch with my clients. So I would I would, you know, be their personal trainer or fitness instructor. And then I would always call them a week, two weeks, or email them three weeks, a month or so after they left. And almost inevitably, they would sort of fall off the wagon. And I thought to myself, maybe, maybe I can do something a little bit differently. So it was then that I, I started my own company uh, called the Proactive Performance Institute in Tucson, where I sort of took that concept that Canyon Ranch had, but boiled down a little bit into what we now see in special operation forces and things like that, what, you know, a high performance team. So I had, we had a group of of physical therapists, athletic trainers, strength coaches, dietitians, behavioral therapists, and nutritionists, all working together to help our clients maintain, not only take up, but also maintain a healthy lifestyle. And it was also there that I first got exposed to attack tactical athletes. So Border Patrol has a very strong presence. So now we're in the you know, southwestern region of the U.S. As we know, there's a pretty porous border there, a lot of drugs coming across. And I had an opportunity to work with the Border Patrol's special operations unit called BORTAC. Um, and that was my first taste, too, after having been a firefighter of sort of s- protecting and serving those who serve and protect. So we got to work with with Bortac and help them to improve their fitness as they would go out on missions that would last 24, 48, sometimes even longer hours where they're just kind of sitting in the desert. And then they'd have to immediately get up and run and do those tactical type things, Uh, but also work with some elite sport athletes, uh, some football players, basketball players, baseball players, and some others. And so I did that for 10 years. I loved that. And I could I could I could anecdotally tell you that that which we were doing was working and I could show you on a balance sheet that the company was making money but I didn't know how to empirically show scientifically show and this is maybe where my my father's influence on me showed up because that's what he had to do right as he was running clinical trials on maybe a, a potential pharmacological treatment for MS Right, the the bar he had to meet was very very high for a treatment before it could be made available to the public. Well, not so much so in in the fitness industry. It's just like, oh yeah, I think it works. Um, You know, and we still suffer from that to some extent. But to make a long story short, um, I I had married my college sweetheart. We were we were both from the East Coast. We were ready to start a family, and she didn't really like the Southwest. So we sold the company, and I two of my employees, both of whom had PhDs, said, Dan, you need to go get a PhD. And I was like, uh, I, I, I am not that intelligent. Uh, I, that is not me. And they said, well, just consider it, because it's really not, A, you don't have to be that smart to get a PhD. You just kind of have to be persistent. And 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 I, I started thinking about it more, and I started thinking about well, I really would like to be able to design a research study that could show empirically, scientifically, that that which we were doing at my company was really making a difference. But I didn't know how to do that. So that's what ultimately convinced me to go back to school. So we moved from Tucson. Uh, we had a baby, do- baby baby, girl at the time. She was four months old. We moved to Columbia, South Carolina, where I entered the doctoral program in exercise science at University of South Carolina. Uh, which was within a school of public health, which is a little bit unique. Most exercise science programs don't necessarily exist within the school of public health. And it was there that I pursued a particular track, which was called health aspects of physical activity. And what that track was about and what the education was about was, was less about individual level performance, which is what I had been doing for the last 10 years, really trying to help people get a little bit more performance out of their out of their lives and and do things a little bit better to or a lot better to how do we get an entire population of people to be just a little bit more physically active to prevent some of those chronic conditions that we see are crushing our economy and so many other things. My my father being an example, right? As I mentioned, I think he died prematurely from a, a poor lifestyle. So It was during that time that I started really understanding the difference between physical activity and exercise, which is something I I think we could dive into a little bit. And also, what I think the most critical thing I understood through that process, and I had a glimpse of it when I was at Canyon Ranch, was that we are creatures of our environment. And if the environment is not really supporting us in living, Healthfully, let's just use health as this example. It can be very difficult, right? The culture of a firehouse, for example, um, that can differ quite, quite, even from one, you know, maybe group or squad to the next, right? The culture can be different. And in the military, we see this too in the United States. There are different cultures within the different branches of the military. Uh, The Marine Corps is sort of known for being kind of the fittest branch. Are there fit soldiers in the Army? Absolutely. Are there fit? Airmen and fit, you know, uh, sailors, absolutely there are. Uh, but there are differences in the different branches. The latest, of course, being Space Force. But the idea is we are creatures of our environment. And if the environment doesn't support us in some ways, it can be very difficult to take up and maintain behaviors that we know are healthy. Whatever they may be, smoking, tobacco, sexual promiscuity, Physical activity, nutrition, sleep—all these different factors that we know impact performance. And so it was. It was. I was actually taking a, a class, not in the exercise science department. It was in the, the, the Department of Health Promotion, Education, and Behavior at University of South Carolina. And I had a wonderful professor named Jim Thrasher. And Jim Thrasher's research was actually in tobacco control policy. And he consulted with uh, government agencies all across the world in how they could help curb tobacco usage in their countries and in their municipalities and so on. And, and he was the one, and the course was actually in, in messaging and framing. That was really the, 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 what the course was about. And what I learned in that course was that in the United States, we had had evidence for decades on the harmful effects of smoking to the individual smoker, lung cancer like crazy Uh, and, and a tobacco industry that was really, and a whole culture that supported smoking. I mean, it was just a social, it was just kind of what you did. It was, it was part of what we did and part of who we were. And then we started getting this evidence on the harmful effects of smoking, but there really wasn't much that was done about it. So smoking proliferated, it continued. And then there was evidence that came out on the harmful effects of secondhand smoke. In other words, the idea that one person's behavior, in this case, health behavior, could adversely affect another person's health. That was when government stepped in and actually said, we're not going to allow this to happen any longer. So you started seeing a Surgeon general's warning on a package of cigarettes. This is bad for you. But then perhaps even more consequentially, you saw, well, you, you can no longer smoke on an airplane. You can't smoke in the workplace. You can't smoke in schools. You can't, and so on and so forth. And the important lesson for me in that was, at least in the United States, you know, we, we can debate all day long about what role government should play in our lives, big government, small government, what have you. But if you look back historically at some of the greatest public health wins that we've had in this country, they've come as the result of federal legislative policy change. Seatbelts, tobacco control policy, clean water, vaccinations. These were areas where government stepped in and said, we're going to mandate these things happen. Uh, And you do have 50 states and and the states can go about things differently. And obviously, we're in a time in this country where there is pretty robust debate. About uh, and we won't. I won't get into it too much here about where I fall on this line. Um, but I, I will say that if we have a social environment that, that that's not supportive, so if our families and friends uh, and coworkers are all heavy drinkers, it might be hard to become sober if that's your social environment. And if your physical environment is that you're surrounded by uh, bars and. Cheap alcohol and so on. Again, it's going to be pretty hard to be sober. And if there are no policies around, we have some, right? You can't drive drunk, uh, and so on and so forth. But so the same is true with, with physical activity. So, so there are, there's a model in public health. It's called the social ecological model. And in that model, you've got the individual who sits at the center and that's individuals' knowledge, skills and attitudes and their behavior, but that an individual's knowledge, skills, attitudes, and behavior is ultimately and largely determined by their social environment, their physical environment, and even the policy environment. And that's that policy environment that trickles down and ultimately influences those physical and social environments. So, um, as it relates to, again, getting into the tactical space I I sort of got into it sideways. It was weird. It was like, you know, again, when I owned Proactive Performance Institute, I had done some work with some tactical athletes. And then here I was at University of South Carolina getting this PhD in exercise science, but with this emphasis on on physical activity and health and learning again through this course with Jim Thrasher, the importance of policy change for really helping support and change individual level health behavior. So we, we know we have an obesity epidemic We don't know or it's not as common that you hear the term physical inactivity epidemic, but we have that too. They're related, but they're different. And that if we're going to impact the physical inactivity epidemic, we're going to need policies and systems and environmental changes that are going to allow more people to become and stay more physically active. And if you're going to influence policy, then you're going to have to make a compelling argument for why that policy should change. So if you take the example of secondhand smoke, this was one of another one of my sort of aha moments. Well, what is the secondhand smoke equivalent of physical inactivity? Cause there had been some research actually coming out. that was when some people saying sitting is the new smoking, the idea that sitting is as detrimental to your health as smoking is. I remember that whole wave when that came out. And, and, and right. I mean, firefighters great example right you could sit around the firehouse and you look at if we look at firefighters law enforcement officers um, one of the greatest risk factors or one of the greatest worst outcomes is sudden cardiac death so again we'll, we'll, maybe we'll come back to that a little bit later but but I started thinking well we've been talking about physical activity and physical inactivity and health and disease and so on for decades and there's really no Equivalent policy changes, like we saw in tobacco control, that has led to changes in in environments.
0: The death toll from the obesity and inactivity epidemic is numerous times the, the already horrendous death toll from smoking. Exactly, and and you started seeing, you know, on on the obesity side and the,
1: and, and on the nutrition side. Which I'm a physical activity guy, so so please take this as as a slightly biased opinion, but it's also true that there's more attention and resources that's been paid to obesity and nutrition than there has physical activity, but you started to see municipalities that were considering and even did put a tax on sugary sweetened beverages. So there's an example of trying to limit, you know, using policy change, right? If you put a tax on the beverage, it's going to make it harder or more expensive to buy that beverage. Maybe in schools, you're not going to see as many juices and soda machines. Maybe it's just going to be water, which by the way, it's taken me a long time to just say water without a New York accent. So growing up in New York, it's water and you take your dog for a walk. But anyway, over the course of, you know, 15, 20 years, I've lost that accent. So now I can say water. Um, but it was again at University of South Carolina. I, I, I thought to myself, what is the secondhand smoke of physical inactivity? And I'd been reading this research on the pretty dramatic uptick in musculoskeletal injuries, MSKIs that were taking place in basic training in the army and, and in other branches as well. But the, the really, a lot of the really good research was coming out of the U.S. Army's uh, public health center. That was my aha moment. That was when I said, we need to reframe physical inactivity as more than just a public health issue or even an individual health issue. It really, and it is truly, a national security issue. And I would argue even further, it's not just a national security issue. It's a state and local security and safety issue. When we think about who is answering the bell, when you dial 911, Who's showing up and what condition are they in to handle the burning building maybe the individual on a foot pursuit or whatever it is and the more fit they are, the better they ab- the better able they are to handle that situation. So if we don't start taking physical activity very seriously as not only a national security threat in terms of our ability to go head-to-head with some of our greatest near-peer adversaries, namely China, Um, we are exposed in terms of our position to maintain dominance as the number one global superpower. Then as you think about it at the the state and local level, and I did some work with the the South Carolina National Guard and had conversations with the state legislature, some of your listeners may be familiar with the fact that the Army, US Army, has, is instituting a new PT test, the Army Combat Fitness Test. And there's a lot of th- that's been politicized quite a bit as well. But part of the challenge for the National Guard was that if that were to become the test of record, right? If you, and, and you might see this in police and fire departments. If we start really testing the physical capabilities of our officers and our firefighters, and they don't meet that standard, what are we going to do? Are we going to have any left? Maybe not. Or maybe you're going to really thin the herd, and that's going to be a problem. Um, But it's this, again, it's this sort of um, cart and horse scenario. And I think part of the rationale behind the Army Combat Fitness Test was if we set a higher physical standard, then we're going to be forced to train the force to meet that standard, which is a really good thing. That overall, you can't argue with the fact that that's a really good thing.
0: Just to jump in for a second, that's exactly what I've been talking about when we hear and this happens in police and fire and just you know all over the world. Administrations have this this backwards philosophy that if we lower the standards, we'll get more bodies through and I've always said this, and I saw this with my own eyes in Anaheim versus some of the departments I worked later, when you set that bar high, you challenge. You don't give people credit when you drop that bar and you invite the turds of the world to come apply and put uniform on. When you put that bar back where it belongs, where you're able to actually perform the duties that you're paid to do, in my opinion, that's how you actually attract more candidates and obviously the quality of the candidates is higher too. 100%
1: 100% agree. I mean, I just, I, I can't disagree. And frankly, kudos to the US Army for going ahead and falling short of their recruiting goal for this year by a lot, by tens of thousands, um, but maintaining a standard and implementing a, in essence, a pre-basic, basic training course at Fort Jackson, where they're saying, okay, you can't meet the standard right now fine but you you raise your right hand and say you know what i would like to serve this country we're going to give you that opportunity to get yourself right to get yourself ready to go into basic training awesome i think it's a great example i think you know we still don't know what the results of that are going to be cuz it's such a new program but this is where james i think there's a tremendous opportunity for those who wear a uniform law enforcement uniform firefighting uniform, military uniform, to be that agent of change in their homes, in their children's schools, in their communities, and to be that example, that, I don't want to say hero, but it doesn't take much to be a hero, frankly, in this area. Just just walk the talk just be regularly physically active and in this case you know physically fit enough and mentally fit enough to, to to do the job and then be that spark plug that agent of change within your community is i think frankly an untapped resource and i don't i don't know much about law enforcement policy I'm, in fact close to nothing i do know that there's a lot of talk about what about community policing and and the idea that um, a uh, the 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 police officers should should look like the individuals that they're perhaps policing, and, and and I think that's particularly thought of in in terms of 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 race and ethnicity and perhaps gender, and that's fine. I, I don't think we want our police officers quite frankly quite frankly to look like in terms of body composition uh, the people that they're policing. So I wouldn't use it in that example, but what a great opportunity. There's a, there's a really great example in healthcare of, of a doctor who was just sick. He was a cardiologist, sick and tired of people walking into his door for intervention, cardiac, you know, cardiovascular interventions that could have, could have 100% been, been, uh, prevented. So he started a program called walk with a doc. And It was simple. He said, don't meet me at my office. Meet me at the park on Saturday mornings, and we're going to go for a walk. Imagine if, and now I'm going to speak to any any law enforcement officer or leader in particular. What if there was walk with a cop? What if on Tuesday mornings, Thursday mornings, and Saturday afternoons, this was not a cop going out there to Necessarily, police uh, or enforce a law or a series of laws, but just showing up in the community and doing good by taking people for a walk, and in so doing, getting to know the getting to know each other, and 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 we could do the same thing with firefighting. And this is also so that's an example of just physical activity, walking. And again, I mentioned this earlier with with I think with some of my work with Andrew Weil, and and I think one of the things that I I think is an important message for people to hear also. Which is the subtle but very important distinction between physical activity and exercise. And I, I don't know do you, do you want to, do you want to jump in at all and, and 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 say anything about how you think at least in the fire service? Maybe I'm turning the tables. you're supposed to be asking me the questions. But do you, do you think firefighters understand the difference between physical activity and physical fitness?
0: No, I, I think there is an understanding of that. I think what we need to discuss before we kind of move forward with the, some of the solutions, though, is the magnitude of the health crisis we have in this country. So if you wouldn't mind telling me how how America compares to other countries around the world, um, and then also how what percentage of our population is considered fit for duty in the military because you talked about that obviously that pertains completely to law enforcement to fire and that that part seems to be getting smaller and smaller and smaller but as you said in the community as well a kind of aha moment i had a few weeks ago is say, I, say i'm a, a shitbag in, in in a town or a village and i look around and the average male and or female is a deterrent to me doing horrible things in that town. Well, I walk around my town I walk around the theme park that I used to, you know, protect, and I'm like, there's nothing deterring me from starting running around punching people in the face, or you know, you know what I mean. So that that national security issue goes all the way from our armed forces down as you said to schools to your neighborhood to your actual home someone kicks in your door do you have the ability to protect your children so talk to me about the magnitude of the crisis compared to other countries and then let's talk about how that impacts the ability to protect our country sure
1: in terms of where we rank with other countries we Spend more on health care in this country, 17, 17.9% of our GDP, gross domestic product, we spend on largely treating otherwise preventable conditions. So I, I don't know exactly, frankly, and i sorry for not knowing this off the top of my head, exactly where that puts us, ranks us in terms of other industrialized nations, but it's really far down the list. So just to put that in perspective with what we spend on military expenditures in a given year in terms of gross domestic product, 17.9% on health care, 3.9% on military expenditures.
0: And that's 17.9% of the, one of the wealthiest nations on the planet. So that's not 17.9% of Peru's national budget, for example. Precisely.
1: And and again, these are largely preventable conditions. And I'll 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 bring up the term for for a moment, compressed morbidity, which is the idea that you basically you die over a very short period of time. So I used when I was when I was at the citadel as a professor and I would talk about this, I would say the ultimate example of compressed morbidity is 103-year-old guy walks out his door, goes for a jog as he's crossing this, right? No, no chronic conditions, no medications, goes to his doctor once a year for a checkup, crossing the street on his morning jog, bam, hit by a truck, dead. Frankly, life well lived, right? Maybe he had a few more years in him, but no regrets. See you later. Cost us virtually nothing to keep that guy around. Flip that to the other side of the coin. Diagnosed with type 2 diabetes at age 15. Used to be 40, okay? But now it's 15, 16 years old. And living with type 2 diabetes, which, which, again, I don't have the numbers in front of you, but costs thousands of dollars a year per individual to, to, to treat and manage. And multiply that by... 30, 40, 50 years, because we can, again, you can live for a long time with diabetes now and heart disease and multiple comorbidities. Um, So if we could take that 17.9%, that sort of the the idea that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of, of flesh. Right. If we could take just some of that money and, and and put it into prevention, we could save so much more on the other side of, of that 17.9 percent of what we're spending and put it towards. I'm not necessarily suggesting we put that into our military, but there's certainly a lot of good places where, where we could put that money. And I would argue the military is one of them. Well, the schools. Right. So let's go. So yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> so we'll get there in a second. Right. So roughly. There's some different statistics out there, and I just just completed the research study with the CDC, actually, where where we used national-level data on body composition and physical activity levels of age-eligible Americans. So this comes um, from, again, this is is national-level data. If you look at those data, roughly... 65% 65% of age eligible Americans fail to meet the minimum fitness standards for the United States military. Just the fitness standards. We're not talking about having a college or, I'm sorry, a high school diploma or a criminal record, which are also disqualifiers, but just the basic physical requirements for service. We're, we're at about 65% who fail to meet. Recent study from the Pentagon when you add all the factors that could disqualify somebody from service and the, quote-unquote, propensity to serve, the desire to serve in the U.S. military, we're at 2% of the population. So that's that's a problem.
0: That, how does that compare to, you know, say, 50 years ago? I mean, obviously, something like World War II breaking out, that's a different kind of uh, you know, generation completely. But let's say... You know, pre-Vietnam or or the eighties, like what what's the comparison? Or even pre nine eleven is there a, is there a big difference? Because I mean, you know, we've watched people get sicker and sicker and sicker in this country, and as you said, not just overweight, but I mean, how many teenagers you see? Then you can tell their muscles have never seen resistance in you know since since you know birth, since they crawled out of the womb. We don't. We weren't
1: looking at it back then. So we, you know, I suppose we could go back retrospectively and t- take some of those same national rep- nationally representative health data. You just gave me an idea for a study. Maybe I should do with, <laughs> with CDC. <laughs> um, what we do know, however, is that physical fitness levels and physical activity levels ha- have been declining precipitously among our youth population over the last 20, 30 years. And obesity levels have been steadily rising over the last 20 to 30 years. And we know that MSKIs, musculoskeletal injuries, that never really used to play a prominent role in basic training are now the number one medical impediment to our military readiness. That never used to be the case. So while I don't have data as as far as how how we compare to where we were uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I will say this. If you look at us compared to China, so China is our number one near-peer adversary right now. So if, if if we were to go to war, it's probably going to be with China. If you if you look at perhaps some some bellwethers, and you look at so in other words, things that might be an indicator of the health and fitness of a population, the number of gold medals that China has garnered in the Summer Olympics over the last 30 years as compared to the. US. 30 years ago, I should pull up the slide because I, I used this recently in a in a, con- in a congressional briefing so I don't have the numbers in front of me, but suffice it to say the gap has closed. I mean we used to dominate China in the Summer Olympic Games and now the gap doesn't exist. We're the same. And if you look at data on the musculoskeletal injury rates, of Chinese army basic trainees as compared to U.S. army basic trainees. For every one Chinese army soldier that gets injured, there are two male and three female army soldiers that are getting injured. So that's where we are today. And that's how we compare to our perhaps our greatest adversary, China. And yes, we, we are also now unable to, for the first time in a long time, across all the branches, not being able to meet our recruiting goals. Same things happening in police departments and firearms, and competing for the same candidate pool. And that's another part of the problem. And what is it really, what's the lowest common denominator? It's youth physical activity and physical education. And perhaps an unintended concept. So we talked about federal legislative policy earlier. Um, There are oftentimes unintended consequences of some of those policies. So roughly 30 years ago, uh, I think about 30 years ago, there was the No Child Left Behind Act, which was a recognition that compared to other countries, the United States was falling behind in the the key academic outcomes of our our, uh, youth. So there was an emphasis put on reading and writing and all these other basic academic skills and the institution of standardized testing and so on. And schools then started to become evaluated on the basis of how well their students were doing on these standardized tests. And if they weren't doing well, then sometimes their funding got slashed. So what happened? The unintended consequence? Let's prioritize these academic courses and deprioritize physical education recess, music, art, all these other things that we know contribute to an overall healthy human being. And oh, by the way, actually do result (laughs) in better academic outcomes. But the result ultimately was that physical education got stripped out of schools. Youth sport has become largely privatized. So if you don't have the money, it's a pay-to-play scenario, largely. And if you don't have the money, then you're out. So there's actually a really interesting inflection point, which is about age 11 in boys and girls. At at about age 11, when when you think about what's happening on the athletic field, winning starts to matter. So at age 11, there's a 11, 12, there's a very precipitous drop in the physical activity levels of of our youth. Probably two reasons. One physical education starts disappearing because now we're doing standardized testing to see how we're doing academically. And we're saying, oh, we don't have time for PE anymore. Spend more time reading and doing math and so on. And two, if you're not good enough to make the team, you don't play. So compared to uh, like countries like Sweden, Switzerland, like look at the winter Olympics, Switzerland just dominated the winter Olympics. And the emphasis, if you look at the youth, that we actually have a national youth sports strategy. And Switzerland has a national youth sports strategy. The emphasis in Switzerland is on fun. They That's, don't emphasize. Well, then it's in the
0: name. It's called a game.
1: It's a game, right? And I, I know I, I, I get it. You know, we shouldn't give participation trophies, and but you know, maybe we can. Like I, you know, I, I love getting a trophy. Maybe that maybe you get a trophy for participating, and then maybe you get a much bigger trophy for winning
0: i've said this exact thing so many times because i make the the point I, I my son did triathletes for excuse me triathlons for a bit and they were fun triathlons but there was a competitive element for the kids that were top and we got up at 5 a.m you know some days it was pissing down with rain and all these kids you know ran, biked, and swam and only one kid of all those gets to win. Now, that kid might have the carbon fiber bike and, you know, all this stuff as well. My son did it on a Walmart BMX, not quite the same thing. Um, And so, this whole participation trophy conversation, I think, has switched from putting no effort in at all and everyone wins. Of course, that doesn't make any sense. But it's so damaging because it's sending the message. It's usually from some obese, you know, turd sitting in a chair spouting this rhetoric anyway. But, oh, so... Basically, the kids shouldn't even try if they're not going to be on the top of the podium. That makes no fucking sense whatsoever. So this participation trophy is conversation. A is so toxic and B is usually from the mouths of the people that aren't fucking walking the walk anyway.
1: Right. And this (laughs) this this emphasis on, you know, I'm going to get pretty soapboxy here for a minute, please. Uh, You know, I hate to tell you this, but. And you can try to prove me wrong. And when I say you, I'm talking to pretty much everybody listening. Everybody listening, the likelihood your kids getting an athletic scholarship and is going pro, the odds are so far stacked against you that I. I and granted, I know college education's gotten expensive, and you could even argue college isn't for everybody. We can have that debate too. Probably not on this forum. But my point is, if you are putting your child in a situation where you're essentially forcing them into playing one sport all year long at age 8, 10, 12, even 14. You are doing such a huge disservice to that child and the rest of their life. It's You should be, frankly, ashamed of yourself. And if you look at the best athletes we've ever had on this planet, they've been multi-sport athletes. So frankly, we should be even more ashamed of the industry that has been created and that we continue to support that is forcing children into being single-sport athletes. It's the program that says, if your kid's going to be on this club team, they can't play any other sports. God, That's got to go away. (laughs) I'm getting fired up. Because the, the rate at which these kids are getting injured from, from overuse injuries and then the rate at which they're quitting at 16, 17, because they're just done. The competition is too high. The level is too high. And they're not developed as athletes. They're, they're, they're just developed as a single sport, something or other. We are doing such a huge disservice to our country. And, and, and again, I'll just quickly say that I'm really thankful that we have an that we in the U.S. have a national youth sports strategy that supports the idea of kids playing multiple sports. And beyond that, says it doesn't even necessarily have to be competitive sport. Let's get outside and play and mountain bike and hike and walk and whatever. Um, but please stop deluding yourself that your kids getting a scholarship. Start finding another way to pay for. It. If you're insistent that your kid goes to college. Start finding some other ways to maybe pay for it. Maybe you're going to be, how about ROTC? Why don't you try that route? And maybe your kid's going to become a leader in our military. But the idea that they're getting a, again, for some, it's great. And for some, I get it. It's their, it's their way out of, frankly, poverty or, or a really bad situation. And, and I, I get that. So I don't, I don't want to belittle that. But that's such a slim minority. And if you can get your kids participating, and if you really want them to be a great athlete, then have them play multiple sports and help them to establish lifelong healthy behaviors for maintaining an active lifestyle.
0: Well, I've seen this with English eyes, and I've had this conversation with so many like high level coaches. And, it, and it's, you know, it's an agreement to exactly what you're saying. Resilience is, is formed by, you know, multi-sport athletics, you know, different planes of movement, keeping the kids enjoying it. But you know, it was so strange for me coming from the US and uh, from the UK, excuse me, in many, many ways from from seeing the line out of the camp uh, as a camp counselor out of the infirmary door. And it was all kids taking Ritalin. And I'm like, what the fuck is Ritalin? You know, and learned, going down that path and learning about medicating, you know, kids that should be exercising, basically. Um, and then meeting and I, and I say this kind of you know half tongue in cheek. Every man and his dog with their Uncle Rico story. Well, you know, I could have been the next, whatever, quarterback, pitcher. But, and they're now 300 pounds. And so you would think that the sports program would create healthy 30, 40, 50-year-olds. In places like, you know, Scandinavia and even, and even the UK, you don't play at such a high level in school, And of course, there are people that go on to, you know, to be Premier League football players and all that stuff. But overall, most people just play. But you don't get hurt. So then when you leave school, you play in pub leagues and, you know, local leagues and whatever it is. But I just see, uh, certainly when I was younger, it didn't stop after you graduate. So many American, especially men are broken at 18, 19, 20 years old, which then sends them down that spiral of ill health. So I agree with you completely. It should be about movement and, and you know, physicality and fitness. We're squeezing out performance so that we can get grants for our colleges and universities and, and high schools. And then the kids graduate and there's no ownership for that, what you've done to that child's life as they move away from your facility.
1: And we could you make that pivot that directly over to the tactical population, right? We, we should have a culture and we're, I I think we're starting to develop it. You know, you, you look at certain agencies, law enforcement agencies, fire agencies, and and, and certainly some of the military communities, the soft community in particular has recognized we need to take better care of people. And we're still not, we're nowhere close to the level of, of taking care of people that we, that we need to, but with, with, doctrine from the military like what's called total force fitness which is the, sort of this overarching doctrine from the from the department of defense that says we need to take better care of the quote unquote human weapon system by looking at them holistically physical mental cognitive nutrition sleep and so on and then each branch of the military then being able to develop their own iteration of total force fitness, Army first to roll out with holistic health and fitness. Uh, and again, we talk about propensity to serve. That statistic I stated earlier that when you take ability to qualify with propensity to serve, we're down to 2%. And I don't know what it is in police and fire, but it's, it's got to be, the, it's probably the same, maybe even lower. Imagine, however, if you were signing up to be a professional within an organization that was promising to take care of you. That was going to create the policies and systems and environments that was going to give you access to healthy food, physical activity, proper sleep when it's when it can be had, right? I recognize in tactical settings, you know, sleep, sleep can be an issue, but at least give you opportunities and tools so that when you do have a good opportunity to sleep, you can take full advantage of that. And you can practice good sleep hygiene and you know what that is. And you're able to have access to behavioral counseling. Uh, and it's not so stigmatized. Um, imagine if we create that culture, like sign. up. If I'm not already just wanting to just serve my country or my town or community, but I'm also entering into a culture that I know values, truly values my health and wants me to be healthy and fit and ready to serve, not just now, but in the future as well, after I retire, man, it's like, sign me up. Let's go. So that, that culture shift, I think, is just starting to happen. And as I said, one of the things I said earlier was, again, some of the greatest innovations that we've had in public health. Um, you know, the, the, the vaccinations and seatbelt usage and so on. It's actually the military, like the DOD and the VA, have been some of the greatest innovators in, in this country, in the U.S., for both clinical medicine and public health, ever. So I'm calling on and relying on the DOD and the VA to innovate yet again. They're they're, they're talking a good game right now, and they're starting to resource this total force fitness that I mentioned and the VA's version, whole health. Uh, But they need to be even more greatly resourced if we're going to prioritize truly prioritize what, again, what the military would call the human weapon system. And and in police departments and fire departments, really creating, again, the policies and systems and environments that are going to outlast any leader, because there's always going to be leadership turnover, that really creates the environment in which these people who have elected to serve are truly taken care
0: of. So when we talk about this subject, about, you know, especially when it's glaring, when we're watching our men and women dying from cancer and heart disease and, you know, suicide and all these things that are, you know, in our face and happening, at you know, literally near genocidal numbers at the moment. So If you look at the whole country, you would think that the empathetic element of being a human being will be enough to say, all right, we're changing things sadly and it's so disappointing to me that's not the case so the other side of it is the economic element now in the fire service specifically the average firefighter works at a minimum 56 hours a week so 24 hours straight without sleep a 48 hour break and then boom you're in it again you know that that in itself is two working days more than the person who pushes papers for a living then that responder because they're short staff is told you can't go home so now we're in an 80 hour week which is absolute insanity when you look at the cost of the impact of physically and mentally destroying a first responder on the back end to me and every sleep medicine expert and every strength conditioning coach and every other person who understands wellness has said you will save money hand over fist if you give these responders more time off in between give them a shorter work week overall give them access to strength and conditioning equipment With all that you've learned, you know, specifically in the Marines and the military side, talk to me about how much money a a department, a state, a a nation would save if they just actually invested, as you said, in their people themselves.
1: We're we're working on it. So I, I would say, again, we don't have enough it's conjecture because we haven't done it. So there there are models that have been developed, you know, statistical models. So for example, there's, there's a statistical model that came out of, out of a researcher at at Harvard, uh, Dr. Ayman Lee, that looked at the percentage of healthcare costs that are attributable to physical inactivity. And I believe and it's been a while since I I read the paper, but I, I believe it's around 8%. So, you know, maybe that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're talking about the fact that we're spending trillions of dollars to treat these conditions, if we just got every single American to achieve 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity physical activity, that's going for a walk. Doesn't have to be all at once. Can be five minutes at a time 10 minutes at a time what have you that we could directly attribute roughly eight percent of that cost we could save right off the bat but i think there's a cautionary tale here and let, let's go back to when i was selling insurance so uh, did you you see the movie um uh it's with tom cruise and he's a sports agent Um,
0: oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a, it's a guy's name, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Uh, Jerry Maguire.
0: Yeah. You had me a hello. Yeah. You had me (laughs) a hello.
1: Right. So there, there's, there, there are a couple of these scenes in Jerry Maguire where there's like a cutout to this old time sports agent sitting behind a desk with a suit on, spouting words of advice to Jerry, basically on, on how to be a better sports agent. Well, I had that same guy, basically, when I I was selling insurance. And so this guy called me into his office one day and he said, Dan, there are two things that'll make people buy insurance from you, greed and fear. Those are the two most motivating human factors. And you know what? I think he was right. And what he said was, you know, if you can convince somebody that you're going to save them some money on their premium... Right there's the greed, uh, or scare them to the point where you recognize there's a hole in their coverage, and you know when the when the loss happens, they're actually not going to get paid. That's the fear piece.
0: Twenty twenty has entered the chat. <laughs> you give people right. government incentives, and you tell them to be scared.
1: So right, so I think I think we we can go down this economic route, like what we would, and we've done that. Again, there's been a lot of modeling of how much we could save if we did more prevention, but we still largely have not invested in prevention. And that's where, frankly, I think we need to up the ante a little bit and be very real. This is not hyperbole to talk about the very real impact that these same preventive measures like you know, healthier nutrition and sleep and physical activity and so on. That if we don't get, start getting that right, and then we really do legitimately risk our daily safety and security in our communities and in, across our nation. These are serious safety and security issues. And if we, like I said, if we don't get them right, it's truly at our own peril. And I have spoken with policymakers for whom that does resonate, and, and part of it is community members want to know that they're living in a safe community, that again, when they call 911, the people who show up are going to be capable, capable enough to handle the situation, and that heaven forbid if we, you know, or, and or when we go to war, that we're capable enough to, to defeat the enemy, and we are we are perilously close to not being able to defeat the enemy.
0: Let me ask you this: Speaking of 2020, there was no time, no better time that I can remember, of a captive audience to finally be able to discuss the health issues, discuss proactivity in in nutrition, in movement, in sleep, and all these things. And in this country specifically, which spanned two tyrants, I mean presidents, um, we uh, we saw nothing but. Close the gyms, close the parks, close the beaches. Um, you know, stop seeing your family members, stop seeing your friends. But if you want McDonald's and beer delivered to your house, we got you, bro. The no, no worse message could have been delivered. Now with the the schools, what a great chance to finally say, all right, fast food chains get out of our educational facilities. Soda companies, no, your machines are not going to be there anymore. PE programs, here's a bunch of money. Let's get you bolstered again. We saw the polar opposite leading up to the beginning of this year, 2022 through your eyes and you know you obviously um, you know interact with people all the way in, in DC itself. how is that allowed to happen in the United States of America in 2022: It's a
1: good question. Um... Because we haven't reached the tipping point yet. And I'm fearful that we're going to reach the tipping point and it's almost too far. So that that's why, again, I, I, I talk about these things now as sort of future events. You know, 9 11 was a tipping point in this country where a, a lot of people raised their right hand and said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go serve. Um, and there are theories of the policy change process that talk about that. It's it's called a focusing event, something that, that really creates this pretty massive shift in, in the policy environment. And so I, we've just allowed it to happen because the consequences have not been dire enough. Um, but it's getting pretty dire. I mean, I, and I hate, I hate to even think about what, what this looks like, but I think it's, it's just a matter of continuing to talk about the what if. Uh, and, and the what if is, again, if we have to face our greatest near peer threat on the battlefield right now, there's a pretty good chance we're gonna lose. And uh, what I'm fearful of is that that day comes sooner than later. We haven't done enough. To be ready, and we do lose. So that's why uh, we're here because frankly, the, the the level of either greed or fear has not been sufficient to get policymakers to act. And, you know, everybody's got their own sort of pet issue. And, and certainly we can we could talk about the environment. And, you know, there are parts of the world where the world is on fire and other parts where it's underwater. And you're starting to see policies change. So that's yeah. Are we anywhere near where I think we need to be in that area? No, um, but we're making progress, and uh, I don't think we've made as much progress in this human health area. And the two aren't unrelated, you know. By the way, um, so I think it's it's again a matter of I don't want to again I don't want to be hyperbolic. I don't I don't want to I don't want to say that these these. Issues aren't real; they're very real, but they'll become even more real if and when we we lose a war, or even again, we, we lose our position as a global superpower.
0: We see what what I struggle with, and I've been very vocal about the fact that I just think our system is broken to how we choose leaders and this is an apolitical statement because i can't stand either of them so so i'm standing in the middle look waiting for someone to lead our country um and i don't understand how you can sit in that position and read the statistics of the millions of americans that die from obesity cancer you know smoking you know suicide overdose and be okay with it why is that not at the absolute forefront of the conversation? And when this whole pandemic hit, the people that were out there saying, Hey, it appears that people who have these pre existing conditions are far more likely to die from this virus, and they were all but called heretics. How dare you suggest that? This is, you know, this is, I know, I know a guy that's 25 and runs marathons. He died. Yeah, you do. But is, Percentage-wise, on the bell curve, where is that? You know, and so I just think it's so irresponsible to, you know, to miss such an incredible opportunity to really force change, and and it and it just disgusts me. And like I said, this is the right and the left, and what have they done? They've got those two groups arguing with each other, defending these people rather than looking around, going, why is it that the lifespan, as you said, you can keep people alive, but are they are they living or they simply existing?
1: So COVID may be a focusing event. It may be that thing that, that, that really gets us over the line. And e- even if we do enact, well, so let's be apolitical again for a second. Even with our tobacco control laws and our laws against driving drunk and our laws against murder, there are still people who break the law. But fewer of them. So the policies, if we put them in place, we shouldn't expect that everybody is all of a sudden going to be more physically active and less obese and eat better and so on. But we are going to create the left and right limits and we're going to nudge people in the right direction. So let's. Here's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for a candidate for president. And I don't know what the unintended consequences of this may be, but I'm waiting for a, a, a somebody whose platform is one of mandatory government or public service. That at 18, almost like like you have in China, right? In other countries where you have mandatory military service, one of the studies I've wanted to do for a while, which I haven't done yet to compare the fitness levels of 18-year-olds in countries that have mandatory military services compared to those who don't. You can imagine what I think the hypothesis is, right? But but if we had the, let's leave the political system itself alone and say, yes, there are probably lots of ways in which to change that. But if, imagine, just imagine what this country might be like if upon completion of high school and or turning 18 you are required to give some type of service back to your country it doesn't have to be military could be digging a ditch on the side of a road could be teaching in an underserved area what have you and that perhaps for for every additional and you get a livable wage off of that call it let's call it $30,000 a year whatever it may be and then for each additional year that you give to your country of service you perhaps have tuition at a public college or institution paid for. I'm waiting for that. I'm not running for office. I'm just saying that's something that I think just about every American could get behind. And again, I'm I'm not, I'm not in government. I don't know what it would take to actually do that. I mean, we have certain programs like that teach for America and some other things but I it needs to be more pervasive and I think it could be the 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 the, the thing that weaves the f- fabric of this country back together and also uh, helps us to become and stay healthier frankly um, so yeah we, we've we're in a bad place and and I don't I don't know how it's going to get better, but when we speak about just, again, changes in government or change vast, vast changes, that's something I would love to see, is that every 18-year-old or high school graduate has to give back a year, has to give at least a year of their time in service to their community, their country.
0: Well, when we talked initially, I sent you, I think, the the YouTube um, advert for the motivation factor and then my interview with Doug. That was JFK's era. He actually had visited um, the school when, it, when that was going on. Um, and sadly, the, in I think I told you this, in the movie, there's one school in California that still had that program. And then Doug told me in the interview that they'd shut that down because of COVID and it never came back out. What do you think about that concept of having a robust PE program? So whether a kid decides to go police, fire, military or accounting or neuroscience, you have an entire school full of children that are, that are exercising and then add in that the school canteen creates healthy cooked food again, which is not some crazy idea. It's just going back to how we used to do it.
1: I can't imagine a better bang for the buck than that, simply. We, we have got to make that one of the priorities, high quality. So there's something called a comprehensive school physical activity program, which as a cornerstone of it has robust quantity and quality of physical education pre-K through 12. In addition to that has ways in which children can be physically active getting to and from school and even during the school day, even outside of PE class, because we know PE is just perhaps one time block during a day or in a week. So if, if I had to advocate for a single evidence-based policy that could really move the needle, that's what it would be. It would be comprehensive school physical activity programs in every school, public, private, charter, what have you, so that every child is exposed to that and every child has the opportunity to know what it feels like to be physically active and healthy And we would see dramatic improvements in so many areas from mental health to physical health, to academic performance, to everything.
0: That would be it. Absolutely. Well, another area, because as you talked about, we've been focusing a little bit more on strength and conditioning and, you know, exercise as in PE, but movement is so important. Where I grew up and we were just talking about this yesterday, um, the bath that the city that i was uh, actually in school with if you went down to the town itself you would park in this beautiful park called victoria park find a parking space somewhere and it was like a 10 minute walk to the shops you spend all day walking around the shops you carry what you bought and then and then you walk back the pedestrianized and that wasn't all pedestrianized but there were large pedestrianized areas but that pedestrianized city center you know the, the use of of um, walking cycling those kind of things appear to create healthier nations as well obviously especially where i live in in florida here everything you drive through you can drive to the dry cleaners the library the cash point you know the the atm all these things what have you seen in other countries that you think that we should try and foster more here in the u.s to move the needle in the overall just movement outside time
1: really what you what you're talking about James is is transportation infrastructure and if you look at Denmark and and Sweden and 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 other countries if you were to go visit you'd say oh my I can't believe how many bicycles there are right and everybody bikes everywhere and walks everywhere and part of it is the manner in which those cities have been constructed is centuries old so they were developed before you had the automobile so that's an advantage right so they're really set up so that you can get from place to place without having to take a car the vast majority of the transportation infrastructure in the united states was developed after the invention of the automobile so what you have is, is urban sprawl. So in the, the densely populated urban centers, like let's take Manhattan as perhaps the best example, it's prohibitively expensive to own a car in Manhattan, right? Greed and fear, right? It's, it's re, it's so expensive to own a car that it's actually less painful for me to walk from place to place than to try to afford a permanent parking space or drive around for an hour trying to find one that I have to pay for, again, probably exorbitantly. So we do have examples in this country of, again, densely populated urban centers where physical activity for mobility is the norm, but that's not the vast majority of the country. What we do have, however, are examples of policies, again, policies like a complete streets policy. Have you ever heard that term, complete streets policy? No, I haven't. So a complete street is a street that accommodates not just cars and buses and trucks, but also prioritizes bicycles, scooters, pedestrians, wheelchairs, and they're purposefully designed so and you can go look it up, Complete Streets, and you can see how beautifully they're designed with park benches and areas of shade and buffer zones so that you're not riding your bike or walking right next to traffic that's zooming by at 60 miles an hour or 40 miles an hour. And so that's a thing. And we also have a United States Department of Transportation. And there's something called the transport, every, you know, and they, they, they reauthorize how much money is going to be spent on transportation. So again, we can, we can, this is where federal legislative policy can have an impact and a trickle down effect on individual level behavior. Imagine if the Department of Transportation decided in collaboration with Department of Agriculture, Department of Education, Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Health and Human Services, that for every $1 that they spend on moving a vehicle from place to place, they were going to spend $0.10 on moving a person from place to place by either walking, riding a bike, or what have you. Right, so that, again, when we think about return on investment, what that could save us in the long run for, for preventing so many of these diseases. If we just took the money we're already spending on transportation infrastructure, but reserve just a little bit of it to increase what we would call active transportation. Now you've got more kids safely walking to school, riding their bikes to school. And oh, by the way, where are we placing schools? Right? Where do we build them? Are we building them in the center of town like we used to or are we giving land for a much cheaper rate that's 10 miles outside of town that now requires a child to take the bus or the parents to drop them off which contributes obviously also to the environment so these things are all interconnected but when you asked me earlier about sort of the idea of physical education and comprehensive school physical activity programs and so on. Part of that comprehensive school physical activity program are things like a walking school bus. That's the idea that a group of parents and maybe even teachers will maybe within a one mile perimeter of a school, they will literally go house to house and pick up kids along the way and shepherd them from home to school along a safe path or what have you. But there are areas, and just like you hear about food deserts, there are physical activity deserts, places where it's just not safe. So I used to live in Tucson, Arizona, which was a, a great cycling community. And I biked a lot when I lived in Tucson. And then I moved to Columbia, South Carolina, and then to Charleston, South Carolina, where I lived in Charleston. Um, I had to cross two bridges to get from my home to the Citadel, my office at the Citadel. One of those bridges did not have a bike line. So it was literally illegal for me to ride my bike from home to work. And I was going to DC for a, for a transportation conference, actually. And my son said, you know, he was, he was like six. He's like, daddy, why are you going away? I said, I'm going away because it's illegal for me to ride my bike from home (laughs) to work. That's why I'm going away. And that needs to change. So Again, is everybody going to ride their bike if we devoted a lot more energy and time and resources into active transportation? No. But we, are we going to nudge a lot of people in that direction? Absolutely, we are. And if you look at towns that have complete streets or at least have robust uh, active transportation opportunities, the home values are significantly higher. So greed, back to greed. I want my home values improved. Awesome. Let's have a nice trail system or a park system or a sidewalk system. that's going to allow you to get from your house to the grocery store on your e-bike. And you can get on your e-bike if you want to still burning a ton of calories. In fact, I just completed a study where we looked at e-bike usage. You know, say, you know about these, right? And there are a lot of cities that actually now have uh, uh, bike share programs. These things are awesome. And we actually compared energy expenditure on a bike share program that used e-bikes versus a bike share program that used just regular bikes that you had to pedal yourself. And actually the energy expenditure ended up being higher with the e-bikes, not per minute, right? Because there's obviously more energy expended per minute on a regular bike, but somebody who got on an e-bike was on an e-bike for maybe 45, 50 minutes. And somebody got on a regular bike was on it for five or 10, or I don't remember exactly what the numbers were, but overall energy expenditure Energy expenditure was significantly higher on e-bikes.
0: And those are the ones that you can pedal, but they also assist you. Exactly. Right.
1: Right. And now living in Vermont, where if I turn right or left, I'm going uphill about 8 degrees uh, or 8% rather. Uh, and I just got permission from a professional mountain biker that it was okay for me to get an e-bike. Like I, I didn't have to give up my my physical fitness guy card if I went and got an e-bike. It's not cheating. So I'm going to go get an e-bike. And I'm going to bike a lot more from place to place, because one of the one of the limitations is, man, I really got it. Like it is hard biking around Vermont, but with an e-bike, piece of cake.
0: Well, that just you know, just to kind of put a bow on this conversation before we go to some closing questions, that underlines the one side of the conversation um, that was rarely discussed. So, what you have, especially you know, in police, fire, whatever, you have more people that are in good shape, and so. You hear a lot of this, well, if people would just get up at five in the morning and go for a run and, you know, have a salad, then, uh, you know, it's just about motivation. Just watch some David Goggins videos and you'll be you'll be solid. But there's there's a percentage of people. And I'd like to consider myself in this, that despite the environment, have been able to keep ourselves in good shape. I mean, the fire service tries to kill you. I got out the other end. So, you know, I guess I did something right. But when you look at an average American suburban city, you know, there's drugstores because everyone's, you know, popping pills for everything. There's a fast food thing on every corner. As you said, you've got to go from car park to car park. So there's, there's no, the environment is basically setting the average person up to fail. Yeah. They're telling you, Hey, you know, you're big, you're beautiful. You know, it's fat shaming. If you question obesity Um, and, so when you are in an average household that maybe the parents aren't super tuned in to how to eat, how to move, and now our children are being raised by them, they're set up for failure. And so by having that change in the environment, having mentors in schools, and my son does a JROTC program in his school, he chose it. I mean, that was, he chose it because the PE program, they weren't doing any exercise. And he was like, what the fuck is this? This is called physical education and I'm not doing anything. So he put himself in JROTC, an amazing program. So I agree with you completely with that. He also put himself in cross country and track. So he runs for the school now all on his own back, but he's grown up in a household where his dad you know is fit and is a firefighter and hopefully some of that rubbed off on him so by changing the environment by making riding bikes and walking normal by putting funding into local farms that grow food organically and you start going to the baker and the butcher and you know the greengrocer, and you understand your food and you learn how to cook a little bit more and you're in the sunshine more and you're more tired at the end of the day so your sleep quality goes up then you're you're just moving that needle 1% every single day and you look back and five years later, your whole family, your whole community is so much better. But if you have a pandemic and you're told to stay in your house, wear a mask, take a shot and shut the fuck up, and that's the only message, how can we then chastise people for their ill health because they're a product of their environment? So I agree with you completely. The, where the policy really comes in is not the ownership of the individual it's creating an environment that therefore enables people to thrive.
1: Exactly, 100%. And, you know, CDC certainly came under a lot of scrutiny uh, during COVID. I wish CDC got as much attention over the previous 20 years for all the policy changes or ideas that they were recommending for change. Right. Because look at the impact that it had when, when, when the government really did listen to CDC and imposed all of these uh, policies on masks and closure and so on and so forth, it really did change the culture of the country acutely, right? Uh, for better or worse, right? I don't know how many people would have died and what have you. And, I, and, and you can easily argue both sides. One thing I will say, you know, so one of the challenges with, with COVID in particular. Because CDC is a, is, a, is a truth-driven, data-driven organization. They are scientists. And I, it is important, I think, for people to appreciate that organizations like CDC are as committed as they can possibly be to the truth. The truth being what is empirically, statistically being shown without any bias. And with an epidemic and a pandemic, what's hard is, is that the data does change. Um, and, and so it can be very hard to make policy changes or policy recommendations on a moving target. With that said, we have 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 years of data. So we know what the trends are for physical inactivity and obesity, but we're not doing anything about it. So if we, if we could give CDC as much power as they had during the pandemic, to recommend changes to policy, let's keep that going. Because by and large, they they would do a lot of good if we we did a lot of what, because the CDC talks about they've got a whole division of nutrition, physical activity and obesity. And if we took the bevy of an evidence that they have, decades and irrefutable, irrefutable evidence. If we took that and put it into policies like transportation, physical education, so on and so forth, we would not be in the the problem. We would not have the problems that we have today. So again, and I think one thing that's important for people to get is that, that sort of subtle difference between physical activity and exercise. Physical activity is a very broad umbrella and there are a lot of things that fit underneath that umbrella, walking, counts as physical activity. Standing up and moving around from your desk actually counts as physical activity. Gardening, taking the stairs, parking further away, all these things count and they actually do count. They matter. Exercise is structured movement that typically means that you're sweating and that you're going to someplace special to do it and you're carving out 30, 40, 50 minutes of your day or maybe even more. And and, and a lot of people are averse to it like we were talking about earlier with kids who get Isolated or or play a single sport for way too long, they just get burned out. Exercise is certainly important as part of a whole physical activity program. And one need not even necessarily exercise. In other words, set aside 30 or 40 or 50 minutes or 60 minutes of their day and, and work out, quote unquote, vigorously to realize the benefits of leading a physically active lifestyle. And I think that message gets missed. I think that e- even from, well, just across the board, people frequently think of physical activity and exercise as being synonymous. They are not, they are different. With that said, I think that industry, the commercial fitness industry has a real role to play an opportunity to engage their communities in being more physically active. They build these centers, gyms, and they say, come to us. Well, why? Why should we have to come to you? Why can't you take, there's a company, for example, called BeaverFit. Do you know BeaverFit at all?
0: I love BeaverFit.
1: So when I was at the Citadel, we we bought a, a BeaverFit system, a locker with some attachments to it. And before it ever even landed on the ground on the ground at the Citadel, we literally just put a concrete slab down. Already there were people showing up and starting to work out just on the concrete slab. Then we put the Beaver Fit locker in as just another opportunity or alternative. Man, that that thing got more use because people a it was outdoors, it was during the pandemic, so that was awesome. But so to have something, imagine imagine the Beaver Fit had. Because this is exercise. Beaver Fit is is exercise, not so much physical activity. However, imagine if there was a Beaver Fit locker in most parks in this country. Imagine Central Park, right? There's 20 Beaver Fit lockers around Central Park.
0: There's one on Miami Beach. There's, there's one on two, Miami Beach. There's two on Miami Beach. Excuse me.
1: So again, the idea of of again, sort of meeting people where they're at, is just so critically important. We see it in the military too. Um, So, again, there are examples in this country where we're doing things right. We just need to really prioritize those things with policy and, in some cases, money to get that return on investment that is going to create the culture shift that's going to give us a fitter, healthier candidate pool of young Americans for service to their country, whether that's as a law enforcement officer, firefighter, military service member, or even teacher or business person or doctor. But we have to make that investment now.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. I'm, I'm hoping to try and get Beerfit to become a sponsor of the show one day because I think they are the perfect equipment manufacturer for the fire service law enforcement because as you said you have a fire station there isn't any space you roll out one of their foot lockers you the rig opens up you do your workout you put it back it can sit in the rain it can sit in the sand i mean you name it so
1: and 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 james let's take it a step further right so now you've got one guy in the firehouse two guys three guys what females whatever in the firehouse they happen to be also pretty they know exercise pretty well so now you invite some high school kids over to start working out with the firefighters. Oh, and maybe you bring a couple of cops over as well and a couple of National Guard members and a couple of veterans. Can you imagine what that would do for that community and for those young people? It's just incredible. And and for us to not be moving in that direction is sad.
0: So one more very, very quick point you deal a lot with government what i see again through my very white belt eyes is if we have a profit profit-based healthcare system where companies make money hand over fist not from healthy americans not from dead americans but that middle sick american group the lifelong drug addict that seems like there's a lot of money being put in palms in government buildings that would oppose some of these proactive health measures. What impact is there on you and so many other people trying to move the the needle in our nation's health? What opposition are you getting maybe under the table from some of these organizations that financially wouldn't benefit from healthy Americans?
1: I don't get the pushback because I'm not the one asking for money in my campaign for public office. So I don't get the pushback. What I'm asking and and, and the message I'm sending to those elected leaders who may be benefiting from money from those organizations is to perhaps just think a little bit more critically about from whom they're going to accept money why they just help them make a more informed decision i'm not here to tell them one way or another but perhaps we can nudge them in the right direction by telling them that 60 to 70 percent of young americans can't meet the basic minimum standards for military service so what are you going to do about that so That's how, again, so I'm not getting the pushback directly, but that's the message that we're trying to send up and talk to the true policymakers and influencers about is that it's really on them to start to make some of these difficult choices. And again, if they, they, you know, even in the for-profit model, if we just said, all right, for every, and by the way, there are some. There are some healthcare providers, Kaiser Permanente and, and some others. They get it, and they're doing it well. And there are even medical schools that are now really teaching nutrition and physical activity as part of becoming a physician. So again, th- there are examples out there that, that are doing this. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe pharmaceutical companies. Uh, you know, we saw this with with tobacco. We're seeing it right now with with the companies that are manufacturing the you know the jewel uh, e-cigarettes and so on they're paying back right for the damage that they've done maybe i don't know maybe some of that needs to be on the on the front end 1% of your profits needs to go towards prevention just
0: just a thought absolutely all right and i think the leaders as well gotta remember that the health of the nation is the their primary goal and that's why we elected them so remember your place
1: the health of the nation, and, and perhaps more importantly, the a cornerstone of American government from its inception has been keeping the people of the country safe. That's what they're sworn to do. So do your job.
0: I think that's a perfect place to transition. (laughs) All right. So the first of the closing questions, I could talk to you for another two hours, by the way. Um, The first of the closing questions, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? Now you mentioned um, Andrew's books. Are there any other ones that you think people listening should know about?
1: Yeah. I mean, again, sort of in the individual, in the category of like individual, you know, health, whatever, lifestyle, health, behavior books. One that's a little bit, off the beaten path, but I think is a really great book, is something called Predictably Irrational. And it's a book by a guy named Dan Ariely. And Dan is a dual PhD in psychology and economics. So he's a behavioral economist. And what's fascinating about Predictably Irrational is it really shows us how we go about making decisions and it's a fascinating read and a fascinating way to understand how not only we make decisions but even how we could help influence others to make decisions so i think predictably irrational is is, is one that i highly recommend um and then i you know god there's there there's so many there are so many great ones out there um I'm trying to think of another. You know, I, I just I just read a book. Sometimes for me, reading is just an escape. We talked about this earlier about just getting people just to read more. Um, there's a there's a really good book that a, a friend of mine. So I'll plug him, What the heck? A friend of mine recently wrote uh, called "Chasing Dr. Banks," and it's just a really easy page turning thriller. Um, and it sort of gives you a little bit of a behind-the-curtain look at academia too, which is some people don't really maybe aren't that interested in, but there is some interesting politics sometimes that happens in academia. So Chasing Dr. Banks by a guy named John Spengler, I was a, a book I read this summer that was just like, just take me away, you know, just help me read something to get my mind off of all this craziness. Um, but yeah, Dr. Wiles' books, I I think are, you know, eight weeks to optimum health, I think is a really good practical read. Um, another one is a book by somebody uh, called Michelle Seeger, and it's called No Sweat. And it, it, Michelle in that book talks about some of the reasons also why we may choose to ha- sort of the, the, the rationale behind why we choose to be physically active or not or eat healthfully or not. So it does provide some really nice insight, again, at the individual level. As to the choices we're making with respect to our own health, uh, whereas again, DNA Rielli's book isn't necessarily about health; it could be about all, all kinds of, th- you know, what car we buy or what home we buy or where we send our kids to school or what have you. So, those are the books that I typically recommend that people read because I think they're I think they're good reads.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you. So, same question, but movie and or documentary? Any of those that you like?
1: Well, I mean, I, I, I'm a sucker, you know, I, I don't know. These are, these are movies that people have probably seen already. Um, I I really like G.I. Jane, <laughs> you know, I, it's sort of the epitome of what you can do to break norms and just grind. For, I, don't, I don't know that everybody needs to grind necessarily, but I, but I just thought Demi Moore did a great job in, in sort of busting ceilings and so on through that. And there's some great one-liners in that movie as well. That's that's a favorite of mine. Um, a Few Good Men, Just I'm just a fan of writing and acting. And frankly, um, I think most people have seen that movie, but that one line of you can't handle the truth perhaps summarizes our entire conversation today. As a country, I'm not sure we can handle the truth. And um, as far as a documentary, geez, I should have been better prepared for this. Um, I don't have a good answer for that one.
0: No, no problem at all. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world?
1: There are two people that I could recommend because they 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 are in different. One's law enforcement, and one's fire. So Kelly Kennedy works for Miami Dade Police Department as their director of wellness and has been there for a long time. And I think she really gets it. So on the on the law enforcement officer side, I think Kelly. Would be a, a phenomenal guest, and on the firefighting side, I think that Annette Zapp.
0: She's actually been on already. Oh, she has. Yeah, she's she's My fantastic. Fault. No, 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 no. It's, I mean, it's hard to find a name in seven hundred episodes. So, so I'm gonna
1: give. I'll give you another one then. Um, not necessarily directly involved with firefighting, uh, but a guy named Nate Palin, who uh, was a is a former special operator and who now is is working, really knows the tactical space, as well as, if not better than anybody. Um, and, and and Nate, Nate just gets it. And and the work that he's doing is applicable to all tactical personnel. Have you had him on?
0: I haven't, but his name keeps coming up, so I need to. Okay,
1: all right, good, good, good. No, Nate's phenomenal.
0: Beautiful, all right, well then the last question before we make sure where to find you and we learn about your, you know, what you're doing now. What do you do to decompress?
1: I so <laughs> I have a hot tub and I do mindfulness breathing exercises, basically. So just about every night as I'm winding down after the kids have gone to bed, I get into the hot tub. This is, this is part of what's allowed me to avoid having back surgery, by the way, for the last 30 plus years is I, I get in the hot tub where I can be a little bit weightless and I do box breathing. So in for eight, hold for eight, exhale for eight, and hold for eight. That's how that's and, and, and actually Andy Weil was the first one to talk to me about breath work. He does four, seven, eight. So inhale for four, hold for seven, out for eight. So there's different methods out there on, on breath work but that's what that's typically what i do and and if my hot tub isn't available right as as it isn't as i'm driving through traffic or in between meetings i will stop regularly throughout the day and focus on my breath even if it's for 30 seconds a minute 2 minutes and especially if i'm heading into a really important meeting i will do some breath work just to try to take my attention away from my mind which is so busy so much of the time and focus it on just the expansion and contraction of my
0: lungs beautiful all right well then talk to me about d bornstein solutions and what where people can find you so
1: okay d bornstein solutions is is the consulting company that i started after i after i left the citadel and moved up to vermont and figured i'd Probably need to make some money to put some food on the table. Um, But that company is uh, basically operates at the intersection of fitness, health, and national security. So I see those three things as as highly complementary, as we've talked a lot about today. Um, So I, I do consulting for various different types of companies, from military to first responder to public health agencies and so on and so forth. Um, so if you just Google that, you know, D. Bornstein solutions, it's not an innovative name. I thought I had some really cool names out there and they were, of course, they were all taken. Um, uh, so that's, and if you just Google, you know, Dan Bornstein fitness, you probably come up with me and, and I, I always welcome the opportunity to, I love meeting. I'm just, I like meeting people and talking with people. So you don't have to be a prospective client or need my services necessarily to, to give me a call. Or drop me an email. I, I love just chatting, and as long as I've, always try to make time uh, to talk with somebody at least for a little while. And I love hearing people's stories. So that's that's the best way to to find me. You know, either D Bornstein Solutions or Dan Bornstein that you know fitness, and you'll you'll find me. Beautiful.
0: Well, Dan, I want to say thank you. It's been. I knew it was going to be a long conversation. It's been an incredible conversation. I mean the. The work that you've done, whether it's at the Citadel or obviously all the the kind of um, interaction with the government and trying to move the needle outside is such a unique perspective. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. James, th-
1: thank you so much. I, I guess the only I can think of as I reflect on our time is is Led Zeppelin's Ramble On Uh, but that's one of my favorite songs of all time. So uh, hopefully those who listen will, will find their time to listen to this whole, this whole episode, but even if they just get splashes of it and thank you, you know, your podcast again, as a medium, I think is really doing so much to change the lives of so many. So thanks for your service as a firefighter and thanks for your service in doing this podcast.